Welcome to the Talent Pool Podcast. I'm your host, Alan Kaplan, founder and CEO of Kaplan Partners, a retained executive search and board advisory firm headquartered in Philadelphia. I'm very excited that my guest today, Reggie Davis, is here with us. Reggie's president of banking at $30 billion asset Flagstar Bank, which he joined two years ago. Reggie is also a board member of Lincoln Financial Group, so he brings two unique perspectives on financial services, one as an operating executive and one as a board member. Welcome, Reggie. Thank you, Alan. So let's dive into the talent pool and talk about that dichotomy. Um, Lincoln, I believe, is your first large public board role, and you're in a substantial C-suite executive role and have been in a lot of senior executive roles. Talk about your transition as an operating executive to now governing, because as I talk to other board members that have made that transition the first time around, you know, you, ha- you have to stop yourself sometimes because you're used to running things versus overseeing things. Yeah, I think the challenge for me is, you know, being in, and I truly have been in an operating role. And w- what I mean by that is, you know, lots of turnarounds and things where I had to understand with a fair, li- fair amount of detail how things worked or didn't work. And so my inclination is to understand things at a fairly deep level and detailed level. And as a board member, I have to catch myself like, I, you know, I don't need to know every last detail. And I have to get comfortable with accepting, you know, the the guidance, the conclusions of other senior people and not asking them the same level of question that I might ask a direct report. Right. Because in a board meeting, you don't have 45 minutes to say, you know, I've got a few questions. <laughs> So thinking about how to ask questions and thinking about, you know, how do I structure the question in a way where it's not a short answer, it gives me enough detail to have context and then still add some value and be okay with, you know, what I'm either agreeing on or trying to disagree on. So it it definitely has taken time and I'm not, I'm not completely there yet. (laughs) Sure. Sure. Well, it also, I would imagine takes a lot of trust in the management team, in the CEO, in the CFO. Um, And of course, those were questions you asked, you know, as a board candidate, but you've got to trust the people and this, and you've got to be aligned on strategy, I guess, and, and all those things, but, but it does take time. And, um, but it it sounds like it's been really another learning experience in a good way for you. Yeah, it is. Um, It, 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 it was a learning experience from the beginning because you say the word trust. I think the, as I reflect on it, perhaps the most important part was agreeing with the general management philosophy of the firm going in, liking the way that they led the company, both in terms of, in Lincoln's case, they're very methodical, obviously insurance industry, but, but they are very methodical in everything that they do. And so that gave me comfort. They also, Dennis Glass operates with a level of integrity and you can see it, right? And I could see that through the interview process also on the board. And so, you know, having to get comfortable with Lincoln in terms of who they were as people first and and being able to now play a board member, I think that's really critical. I mean, I probably underestimated that going in. But it was really important that we were culturally aligned, values aligned, um, that I trusted them, trusted their processes, how they approach the business, their intent, 
their motivations, et cetera. That's really important. So it sounds like a very planful company. So one of the things that um, I'm always interested in, you know, because of what we do here in our firm is the dynamic of CEO and executive succession. And um, I would imagine that in your day job at Flagstar Bank, you were part of those conversations. Now you're sitting on the board. Can you talk a little bit about what you see the board's role relative to CEO and the senior kind of C-suite team from a succession management perspective? Because it's so important to have that continuity of strategy that comes, I think, with continuity of leadership internally, whenever you can get that. Sometimes you can't, you have to go outside, but talk a little bit about your, your views and, and best practices that you've seen in that regard. Yeah, I think that, um, let's start with the company and management first, because I think that's that's the probably the, the foundation, right? And so I think good companies um, understand what sets of experiences are needed um, from a leader, and usually they're diverse. And some of the, it is intellectual dexterity, it's the ability to move from one assignment to another, large, small, strategic, turnaround, et cetera. And so I think being able to identify the talent first in a very methodical way, how do people go about identifying talent? I think using things like competency models and things that create some level of objectivity and transparency are helpful versus being completely reliant on people's intuition or recommendations so that there is visibility in the company. I think creating a common vernacular is really important. So as we talk about people, we're actually saying the same things and assessing the same skill sets. So I think creating that understanding and that and vernacular and structure is really important. That then allows the management team to identify potential candidates and no two candidates are going to be alike. There are trade-offs with every candidate. So understanding what the soft spots are with each candidate and then formulating a career path that hopefully addresses some of those soft spots. If, if they don't completely go away, at least they get diminished some, right? So that when that management team finally presents a slate of candidates to the board, number one, the board should have visibility into those, those candidates and their career way in advance of any promotion, right? So that means the board's got to have visibility across not just two or three candidates, but, you know, who are the 20 people in the company that are most important? Why are they most important? What are their skill sets? What assignment do they have currently? And how is that assignment? Where does that fall in terms of their overall development, right? And so the board ought to see people growing over a period of time and understanding kind of where they failed, where they had trouble, where they succeeded, so that you can start to see if everyone's gonna fail, the question is how someone failed and then recover, right? And then so the board needs to be able to see that. So how far down, well, you know, you've obviously got the CEO and kind of the C-suite, you know, direct reports to CEO, but how much further down is it another level or two levels? Cause you know, in a company the size of, of Lincoln with many thousands of employees, you know, you're obviously not going to see everyone and everything, but it feels to me like you probably want to be a little deeper than just the top 10 or 12 executives in terms of planning over time for succession. How far down do you go and you think you should go? I think it's the next two levels below the CEO. You know, I think I think before that, any deeper is interesting, but I think it's premature. I don't know how you gauge someone that is at that level of their career. They still have so much to to, to learn and grow. and 
people change. I mean, it's amazing the growth that, that people have. It, it, it's interesting, you know, jobs make you grow. I mean, I, I, it's um, every job I've ever had, I always thought, oh, I could do that job. It's one level up. And that one level typically requires exponential growth. It's like a, it's a two times, three times, sometimes four times leap in terms of sophistication, complexity, skill sets, et cetera. Yeah. And, you know, um, as you said earlier, you know, people need to be allowed to, to fail or to make mistakes. I mean, not catastrophically, but you learn from mistakes, right? You know, success, you know, sometimes gives you overconfidence, right? But you learn from the things when they don't go well, at least, at least in my life and plenty of things have, have not gone well. And I also think to your earlier point, there's a lot of perception out there. You know, we have a project we're doing right now, evaluating, uh, deeply evaluating two internal contenders to succeed as CEO in NASDAQ listed financial company. And long story short, I think the candidate that they kind of went in thinking was the stronger candidate Many things have been revealed that perhaps technically that person is much more proficient and yet maybe doesn't have uh, as many of the CEO qualities. So the board is trying to wrap their, their arms around, hmm, how is this really going to play out, right? Because yeah. it's not as obvious with more data and a process and consistency that you talked about and all the things go into it than it is on the surface, particularly because you have limited window into executives as a board member, even if you're seeing them in every meeting or, or you're having dinner with them once a year, it's not the same thing. Yeah. And, and it takes longevity, too. The thing that I um, have cautioned companies, and I've seen this happen, actually, in a, one of the companies I was with, when you move people too fast, almost anyone can be successful for eight or 10 months or even a year. You know, you can get in and do a few things and all of a sudden... You know, just because there's a new boss, there's a certain positive, you know, people work a little harder, they, <laughs> you know, it's a little harder because they're trying to impress the boss. So you actually have to see someone over some period of time. It's actually good to see them over, you know, an economic cycle. So it, it's important to put people in jobs and watch them over time and watch how they perform and throw different scenarios at them. Yeah, and, and sometimes we see executives you know, that are very talented, but every two or three years are actually changing companies because they're getting recruited, you know, for a bigger job. And on one hand, you're like, well, they must be doing something right. On the other hand, they sometimes haven't been in any one role long enough to, to tackle the tough issues or to get really good. And then all of a sudden they're on the cusp of a humongous job. And you say, wow, I hope they can do it because if they, and I'm sure you were, that was you sometimes, I hope they can do it because if not, it's really going to hurt that person's career in addition to maybe hurting the company. Right. You know, and that's right. I think the hardest job I, one of the more challenging, that was at the hardest job. One of the more cha challenging situations I was in is I had two really strong years of performance. And then I had, you know, the expectations of having a third and the team, I could tell going into the planning cycle, the team got lazy. The team got overconfident. You know, it was like, we got this. We don't, we don't have to apply the same discipline. We don't have to look at the budget and scrutinize it the same way we did in the past two years because we're good now. And so trying to create the sense of urgency in that team, not by in any way diminishing their confidence, that's good, but getting them to kind of sign up again for the same type of rigor and discipline that got us to that place in the first place, it, it was, I had to kind of redo 
some things in terms of my style and my approach. Yeah, I can appreciate that. So, so from your your boardroom perspective and experience, we're in a very different place today than you know three or four years ago, let alone ten or fifteen or twenty years ago. You know, it seems like all everybody talks about is ESG and there's sustainability and there's DEI and what are we doing from a governance perspective? It's best practices. How do you see those issues weighing on board deliberations and evolving over time? Yeah, I, you know, I think that all companies, there's a sea change out there and it's being driven, I think, generationally. I, I think the the new consumer and the new worker are very different than than even I, than I was. Our, our vintage. Yes, our vintage. <laughs> Your vintage, no, our vintage. Diplomatic way to say old. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, the, 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 yeah, I was talking to a friend of mine this morning, just about how the workforce has changed, how people are much more aware of lifestyle choices, of quality of life. And what comes with that is this social responsibility that people want to do business with companies that reflect the types of lives they aspire to lead. They want to do business with a company that has the values that they are covet and, and feel like are, are important. And so all of a sudden companies have been thrust into this role of being more than just a provider of services, but actually reflecting their consumer. More of their, what the consumer really feels and thinks. Feels is really important. And that's not something that we talk about in business. And, and buying things typically is an emotional decision as much as it is a pragmatic decision. So I think when you're sitting in a boardroom, you do have to think about, you know, from a from a responsibility perspective, how does a company provide leadership, societal leadership around certain things, occupying the space that it occupies? And it's different for different companies. Um, you know, for Lincoln, um, clearly, you know, the responsibility around helping people plan for the future, um, dealing with the fact that we no longer have you know, in some industries, pension phones for people to rely on. So right. all of a sudden the life insurance product takes on added dimensions um, and responsibilities beyond just providing life insurance. It's also an investment vehicle. So you have to kind of think about that. And then in terms of how we do our business every day, you know, what are the other th ways we can positively affect society? So it's everything from diversity to thinking about, you know, environmental issues and what are the consequences of the company's actions, et cetera. And so the board has to be vigilant around that because the board oftentimes has a purview. You know, you're not there every day doing the work. You're able to step back. You're bringing experiences from hopefully other industries, um, other professions, and, and you're trying to determine what's important and relevant for this particular company and what should they be addressing and what should the priorities be and what did leadership potentially miss? And fortunately, in most cases, leadership had missed a lot. Um, but but it's up to the board to ask the question, right? And make sure that we're satisfied with the answer, both the velocity and 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 the level of commitment the company has to actually making progress. Well, and to your earlier point, you know, I, I think even in financial services, which is a rapidly evolving industry, I still think a lot of organizations are sort of slow to adopt to the fact that. You know, women make more major purchasing decisions today than men in houses and cars. You know, more the workforce is, you know, pre-COVID, more women than men, 
more diverse populations coming up. Most new businesses are started by women and diverse populations, not by middle-aged white guys like me who might, you know, get laid off or retire early. So I feel like some companies are, are slower than others to see not only where are the opportunities, but where do we need to actually be reflecting what society needs, what society wants, you know, in terms of the services and products. Like they're, it's almost like they don't really understand their their customers in some cases or where their market opportunities are in some cases. And hopefully both Lincoln and Flagstar, you know, have been, you know, on the front end of that kind of thing, but it can be a big shift for some management teams and boards strategically. I agree. I, one of the most provocative questions is a very simple question. A board member at Flagstar, I was going through our strategic plan, and she asked me, she said, do you know where your customers are today? I thought, <laughs> that's a that's a really good question, right? I mean, I know the client, but, but where are they today? Because the presumption could be they're at another bank. But in financial services, the likelihood is the customer that I'm after is has a um, a fairly diverse wallet that is parsed out between fintechs, single product providers, you know, and, and it may be aggregated somewhere, but it's probably not with one provider. And I think all companies have to have to think about that. And I think to the extent that your boardroom or your management team is all this, you know, looks alike, acts alike, thinks alike. And, and it's, it's not just racial diversity, it's experiential diversity. It's socioeconomic diversity. It's, you know, how do you live your life? Because basically how you live your life and the people you come in contact with define your your reality. And if no one's in the boardroom or no one's in the management team that has a different experience, it's very easy to lose sight of who your client is and what they're thinking and what's important to them. Well, I just pulled my, my phone out because at one point I had seven financial institution apps on my phone. Four of them are mine. Three of them were my mother's when I was managing her her accounts. But to that point, and you know, and her situation was really simple. But you know, she had you know investment firm, and she had the credit union that she was a member of as a state employee. That she had a little bank, so she had three in a very simple situation. So to your point, you know, people are a lot more spread around than maybe they think they are, or maybe that their bank, if that's your primary financial institution. And then, of course, we have the massive invasion of technology in every aspect of life and every aspect of the financial industry. How much of a topic of conversation from a digitization and innovation product perspective are you spending time discussing in the boardroom? Um, I think that's probably the predominant topic. You know, uh, I think it. I think it's both in my life as an operator and life as a board member. It probably is the dominant topic and the topic that needs the most exploration because I think there's a there's an oversimplification of, of what technology means. Right. And everybody says digitization like it's a singular thing. I mean I, I mean you really actually haven't said anything when you say that because there's so many dimensions to that. You know, there's there's the everything from the channel, digital channel, which is a new channel, to the automation of core processes that provide greater speed, lower cost. And then there's strategic technology that gives you capabilities that heretofore, like AI, that you hadn't had before, which are completely new. So, you know, and that's just three big buckets, and each of those are six miles deep. Right. So, you know, I think technology, I don't know that most companies 
understand that technology is not actually a subject. It is the business. I mean, I don't think that we'll be talking about technology is this and, you know, in even five years, you know, everyone is going to have to be technology savvy. It's a little bit like saying, you know, balance sheet and income statement. Who should worry about that? Probably everybody. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's part of every company. I think technology is the exact same way. You're going to have to have some fluency in it, at least in its application and implications around competitiveness, or you'll be, you won't be. <laughs> sure. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's, I go to some websites for, you know, very small community institutions you know, with a terrible website and, and, you know, if they have you know, online banking, it's pretty bad. I mean, I worry about the future for those organizations because they are really vital to certain small communities, right? Well, you know, the interesting thing about technology and, this, you know, the, the banking industry will have to deal with this. Technology is not actually the answer. People, it is now because it's relatively new. So everybody kind of has, some, let's, let's do some more. But the question is, once we reach parity, then what? Right. You still have 5000 financial institutions. Once everybody has digitized their platform and has basic capabilities, then what? You haven't created any differentiation. Right. This whole notion of technology being a competitive advantage, there's got to be more to it than that. And studies show that as digital utilization goes up in an organization, that connectivity and connectivity to that brand and loyalty goes down primarily because it becomes more of a transactional relationship. So if you think about all the apps on your phone, I mean, you may like an app, but it's a transactional relationship. It's not that brand. And so then the question becomes, how do you create brand and brand you know, allegiance through a digital environment? And how do you engage people um, through a digital environment? Because I don't know about you, I have 300 and some odd apps on my phone. And I probably only use six. And that's because, you know, I use them for a period of time and then my behavior doesn't change. So I don't need the app. <laughs> I'm only using apps where I'm fully engaged. And so just having technology is not enough. We're, you know, Flagstar and I think at Lincoln, we're trying to figure out, you know, how do you build a relationship with individuals supported by technology versus how do you create this, you know, robust technology set that's going to give you a competitive advantage. I think it's two different ways of thinking about it. Yeah, because whether it's an employee relationship or a customer relationship, you know, the technology is the tool, but they want the relationship, particularly when they need it, whether it's solving the problem or for make, staying connected to the employees and the culture from a retention perspective. So the only thing I'm sure of, Reggie, and, and you've got a lot of perspective on this, is it's going to be really interesting in the next couple of years across the financial services industry, for sure. It, it, it very much will. You know, the new generation, they're talking. It's funny. They, they, use, they use the information and then they engage with each other, right? They're not engaging with institutions. They're engaging with each other. So then how do you go to where the buyer actually is and where they're having that conversation around and making the decision? It's a, it's a very different world. Well, Reggie, your perspective on this, you know, particularly as both a board member at Lincoln and a C-suite executive at Flagstar has been really great. I want to thank you so much for sharing those insights with us today. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Alan. I've enjoyed it. You've been listening to the Talent Pool Podcast. I'm your host, Alan Kaplan from Kaplan Partners. If you'd like to hear more from our guests or learn about our firm, visit kaplanpartners.com. Thanks so much for joining us today.